Broadway show sitcoms uh, in our church, but for the, this week of Advent, we thought this would be something special. And this is related to our theme. Um, I know that in a couple of days, many of us will be celebrating Christmas with families or extended families. And if you're anything like, we're all the same, really. We have some weird relatives, you know, don't, they probably think, you know, same, they got weird relatives. But, um, you know, crazy uncles and people with bad sense of humor. And sometimes we think, oh, I don't really want to hang out with that person. Um, but you know what? Jesus also had some very weird relatives. And as we're looking um, during this season of Advent, we're looking through the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And as we read through, you find there's some like crazy like grandmothers and great-great-grandfathers that Jesus had. We also realize that um, there are people there that are not Jewish. And so Jesus grew up as a Jewish boy, but he isn't a pure-bred Jewish boy because in his ancestry, there are people like uh, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and people who are definitely not Jewish people, yet these are great-great-great-great-grandmothers. Uh, and so um, by opening up his gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, what Matthew's doing by opening it with this genealogy, he's saying, this is, um, there are misfits. There are people that you wouldn't think belong you know, in the gospel story or or in this new family that Jesus is creating. And so that's kind of some of the, the um, parallels between these sitcoms that we're watching and reading Matthew chapter 1. So I hope that uh, it's obvious enough to you that you don't, we're just not you know, wasting time. It's, uh, really we're making a point here by watching these. Anyways, there's one more, uh, January, uh, December 30th. I will show uh, the last one as you look at the fifth woman um, in Jesus' genealogy. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. There is uh, another genealogy in Luke, but this one specifically in Matthew chapter 1 is kind of odd. It's not odd for us as uh, people living in this century, but if you were a first century Jewish person reading this, you'd think, why are there women in this genealogy, like we always just go through the, the, the men and the, the father's line, and this is the father of this person, and the father and the father, but there's these four women, and then a fifth one, and so uh, they kind of stick out. And so I imagine, we imagine that people reading this back in the first century would be like, what is she doing here? Like, why is that woman uh, listed in Jesus' genealogy? Not only is she a woman, but it's like, it's like Tamar, remember from a few weeks ago, and like, Ruth, who's a complete like, foreigner, and then like Rahab, like the prostitute. Why are these people listed? And so today we're looking at uh, the fourth uh, person, uh, Uriah's wife, the fourth woman uh, in Jesus' genealogy. If you have uh, Bibles, please open uh, your Bibles um, to Matthew chapter 1 for now. And if you have it on your phone, please open up to that. If you'd like to borrow a Bible, we would love to uh, just lend you one for today. And then... Um, also, there are some sermon notes if you wanted to follow along, or if you don't want to doodle by coloring, you can doodle in the sermon notes. That is also fine. So Brian and Karen are coming down. Just raise your hand or wink at them or something, and they will lend you a Bible or give you some sermon notes as we go through this. So Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That was the first uh, oddity listed in here, Tamar. Uh, Perez uh, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. 
There's another woman listed here. Rahab. That was a darn purpose. That's a trick that we do as preachers. You know, we read the wrong too. So thank you. Uh, okay, Samuel, the father of Boaz, whose mother uh, was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. That was the third one. And then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And then this really weird line right here. David was the father of Solomon. Remember the King David, right? King Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So here's the fourth woman listed. So Uriah's wife. Why? She doesn't have a name. She's just listed as the wife of Uriah. And this lady, Uriah's wife, I'm going to see if I can get this up here. Can you advance the first one for me? Uriah's wife appears in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. We just read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and 1 Kings 1 and 2. Some of you may recognize uh, what her name is, but we'll get there shortly. The wife of Uriah is listed in these three, um, three sections. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12 now, because in order to, to understand why these people are here, like what is she doing here in this genealogy, it is good for us to understand the story. So let's recap the story. Let's retell it's a story time. Let's look at the story again. Can you look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12? If you don't have your Bibles, many of the verses will be up on the screen, but it would be great if you can follow along as well. And not everything in your notes is part of the sermon, therefore you take home and to reread, even to be, to be looking through, um, uh, even as we read. I, we, we love having children in our services. Often they go downstairs during the message time for their own uh, teaching time, but for the next few weeks they are with us, and so I am aware that we have little children here, and so um, I may not use the words that I would normally use, because um, some of these people are kind of scandalous, and uh, you might understand, so if I use a word that doesn't sound as strong as it could be, that's, I'm not trying to water it down, I'm just aware of our audience, but you can see uh, in your notes if you follow along maybe what I'm referring to. So she's in Matthew chapter 1. And also, let's look at uh, 2 Samuel, starting with um, chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read through this story. David and Bathsheba is how the title is. So now we know uh, Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. Maybe you remember that story uh, from Sunday school days or from uh, paintings. She's been painted uh, by famous painters over the years. But chapter 11, verse 1 says this. In the spring, at the time... When kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So this story begins with this story of wars. Let's just uh, give a little bit of um, background to this. This is chapter 11 and 12, and we don't have time you know, to read the whole story right from 1 Samuel, but if we did, you would remember that just chapter 4 and chapter 10 uh, there was a king called King Nahash, and he died. King Nahash was king of the Ammonites, who were um, just on the other side of, of the Jordan from, um, from where David's people were. And uh, Nahash was an enemy of Saul, but he was a friend of David. And so that might make sense to you if you remember how Saul was and how David was. So he didn't like Saul, but he was a friend of David. So when King Nahash died, you'll read this in chapter 10 if you want, David thought, I want to send my condolences. And so he sent a group of men um, over to the Ammonites to say that they're sorry that their king died. 
But the new king saw these people coming from Israel, and he thought they're coming to spy out the land. And so he um, did some crazy things to these men. He, like, um, he cut off their beards, which I guess was really awful, and then also uh, cut their clothes off like, from the waist down and then send them back home. So it was quite humiliating. And so David saw this, well, this is like a declaration of war. Like I sent them to, to, to send condolences, and you've done this. It was a misinterpretation, and now they are at war. So the Ammonites realized we need help. So in the, uh, they got the Arameans or the Syrians. They're translated both ways. We need your help. And I'll use Arameans because uh, that's what it is in the NIV, the translation we're using. Um, they said, we need your help, so come help us. So the Arameans come and help. And then the Arameans see that um, this isn't working well. Um, David's army prevails. Um, but the Ammonites try again. Let's get more of these, these, um, these people to help us. Again, um, before they go to war, David goes and attacks the, the Syrians, the Arameans that are helping them, and then the Ammonites are like, okay, let's, let's make peace with David's armies. And the Arameans are like, well, that's not, I don't want to help you guys again. Like, it was pretty humiliating. We're just trying to help you, and now you're making peace with them. So that was the end. Now we start chapter 11, and chapter 11 starts. David is, is one just to go finish them off and just finish the war that had started. So in the spring... Um, at the time when kings go off to war, apparently that's what normally happens, kings go off to war. Uh, David sent Job out with the king's men in the whole Israel. But David, who is the king, didn't go. This is the time when kings would go to war. David remains in Jerusalem. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. That makes me think, I don't know why he didn't go to war, but it wasn't because he was all that busy. It's like he's, he's napping, I mean, in the day. So he got up from his bed in the evening, and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. We see here, uh, in the scriptures, we only see David's perspective. We do not see uh, what this woman was thinking. We do not know um, explicitly what her intentions were or why she was doing this. The scripture does, though, give us suggestions. And a little bit later, the scriptures do tell us why, what her purpose was for bathing. And some have insinuated, and you may have heard other messages or read stories, that, that this is what she wanted. She wanted to be seen, and so she was doing this on purpose, and she knew David would, would see her, and so she was being you know, very seductive, and so she's partly uh, to blame. Nowhere in Scripture do we read any of her motives. I think if her motives were important, probably they would tell us in Scripture, but we only see this from David's perspective. However, in Scripture, there are many hints, and there's a chart in your notes that, that will signify that it probably had nothing to do with her. It was all on David. And if you wanted to look at those charts, you could see um, what actually was happening. So it wasn't really adultery. In the, it, wasn't, it was something worse. You could see that um, in your notes. Anyways, this is, the woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. Like, who is she? The man said, uh, she is Bathsheba. Now we know her name. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is important information. Eliam um, was a mighty warrior uh, in David's army. Uriah was out to battle right now, and he was an esteemed um, uh, warrior as well. But Eliam's father was one of David's chief advisors. His name was Ahithophel. So she, but she was married to people of prominence. She um, has these strong connections. David finds out 
who she is. She is possibly the granddaughter, most likely the granddaughter to David's advisor, Ahithophel. She's a wife to one of his top fighting men, Uriah. She's also the son of another one of David's soldiers. So David knows, okay, Uriah is out to war right now. I, I, I know where he is. But it's almost like the, the, the narrator, the, the story is telling us, uh, David, just so you know, this woman that you see and you thought was beautiful, um, you know, she's married to Uriah, one of your best soldiers. Oh, and also her father is Eliam, another one of your elite warriors. And don't forget, Eliam's father, Ahithophel, is one of your chief advisors. That's kind of what is being portrayed here to David. But this knowledge does not stop David. Immediately in the next verse, David sent messengers to get her. He probably should have thought, oh, she's, she's a woman of providence. I, I mean, even, he just should have thought she's married, is what she thought. But he should have thought, but he sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and, and he slept with her. Very, um, the story goes very quickly now. He sent messengers. She came, and he slept with her. It's all about David. These actions are all in his, his he saw a woman bathing, sent someone go get her, find out about her, then go get her, bring her back, and then he slept with her. And then, um, well, Bathsheba did come. She was called, and so she came. And so some people said, well, she was going very willingly. She knew what she was doing. Her plan's working well. But, um, I mean, this is the king calling you. Like, do you really have a way to say no? And not only, he sent messengers, plural, to, like, go get her and bring her. So we don't know her motives, but it's suggested in the text that she wasn't, you know, willingly doing this. But she was... But the text does tell us, after, that, after he slept with her, why she was bathing. There is a motive for her. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. This is something uh, in Leviticus um, 15 or 19. Those are, anyways, if you want to take a note, put Pastor Joseph's Leviticus 15 or 19, one of those two chapters. You can see the laws regarding uh, monthly uncleanness. So she was just observing uh, the religious her doing her religious obligations. She was doing what was right, what she was um, being asked to do. So she was purifying herself for monthly uncleanness. This also uh, lets us know, as the readers, um, that her chances of getting pregnant are higher now. And since Uriah is not there, if she does get pregnant, it's not her father, it's not her husband's, you know, child. And then she went back home. There is nothing in here that talks about them having this romantic relationship, or it was just like, come and go, done. Then she went home. It's also, um, it's kind of ironic that um, in those brackets, right, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. It's, it's kind of putting, setting her up against uh, the David. And as we've seen in the other stories of the women, it's the women who, who they're the ones who have the, the faith. They're the ones who who contributes to the storyline of Israel. The men are the ones who are failing. Um, with Tamar, she was the one who had faith, not her father-in-law. And also with Rahab, right? She was the one who believed in their Lord that he was going to provide, not the spies. And, and same with Ruth as well. She, so now again, it's this kind of this same theme. She is observing religious obligations. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. David just sins, just does the wrong thing. She's guilty of, uh, if she's guilty of anything, as one commentator said, she's guilty of three things. Being visible, uh, being a woman, and being beautiful. 
Now we know that's nothing to be guilty of. But if you want to suggest she's guilty of something, maybe that's what she's guilty of. Then verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David. Just two words in the original language, I'm pregnant. Notice, um, we're going to keep reading through the story. There's a little bit more, uh, and then we're going to come back and see. Um, just that we're, we're looking at the story, and we have to go back and see why is it in the genealogy? Why, why is it referred to? Why is she referred to as Uriah's wife? So we're still talking about her story. She said, I'm pregnant. Notice here, it's, again, she's referred to as the woman. She's introduced as Bathsheba, but then all the rest of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12, it's either the woman or the wife of Uriah. This is how she's known. And then finally, at the end of chapter 12, her name uh, comes up again. It's very uh, impersonal. To David, she's, she's a woman, but to us, we know she is the wife. She belongs to um, Uriah. Anyway, she sends a message. The woman sends a message to David, really short, really sweet, two words, I'm pregnant. So let's keep reading. And I'm going to speed up a little bit just for time. So keep your Bibles open. And let me just summarize the next few, um, the next chapter um, and a half. This is, this is what happens. David's like, okay, this is not good. She's pregnant. So he concocts this plan, which sounds wonderful. He asks, he sends a message out to the commander of the army, right, to send Uriah back home. Let's bring him home. So Uriah comes home. Um, David uh, meets with him. He says, hey, how's the war going? And, um, you know, why don't you relax? Why don't you go home, okay, and just, you know, hang out with your wife for a little bit? Because David's thinking, he comes home, you know, he gets together with his wife, and then when the baby's born, Everyone's going to assume it's Uriah's baby, you know, because he came home from the war. So it's perfect, perfect plan, right? But um, Uriah um, doesn't do that, does he? Instead, um, sorry, just follow my notes here. Um, he decides he's not going to go back home. He's going to stay at the palace and sleep outside with the master, with his servants. And so David finds out well, he didn't go home, so he calls him up to his quarters and he says, wait. Why didn't you go home? Like, just go relax, you know, have, have some fun, like, chill for a little bit. And then he responds, oh, I can't do that. So I forget what it's on my notes. No, that's not. I can't do that because my, my, fan, my, my, my country's out fighting. How can I do that? That would not be right to, to indulge in this kind of um, stuff when, when they're, I, I can't do that. So David continues his plan and he gets him drunk. The scriptures say David gets him drunk. Um, and then sends him home because maybe his inhibitions are lowered or for whatever reason. Um, again, Uriah does not go back to be with his wife. So David's plan is failing. Then David says, okay, go back to war, go back out to the battle, and he sends this message to Joab, the commander of his army. He says, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw so he'll be struck down and die. And that's exactly what happens. Intentionally, Uriah um, the commander follows David's plan, and Uriah is killed. So David has done this awful thing with Bathsheba, and now he's killed her husband. This is the story. This is in chapter um, 11. And then um, David hears. Joab sends a message. But this is what happened. Just so you know, this is what happened. And, and then David says, okay, well, don't let this upset you. Can you believe that? David says this to his commander. It's okay. Like, it's, don't, let the, don't get mad at this. I mean, not only did... Um, Uriah died, but all those other people that were with him, like not everyone, it wasn't just him, other men died as well. It's okay. The sword devours one as well as the other. Please keep going. Attack the city and uh, destroy it. 
uh, we see here, this is nearly, this is David's, you know, perception. It is not God's perception. David says, don't let this upset you. But we'll see shortly that actually God is upset by what happens. At the end of chapter 11, it says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So you can see, sometimes, I mean, I understand that, right? Sometimes my actions, I don't think they're all, you know, I have one perception of it, and maybe God has a different perception. We can see that happening right now. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. So chapter 12, I just need to get a little drink. I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 12. Follow along if you want, or just... Uh, Listen to me read. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him. It grew up with him and the children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, not drinking my coffee, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. This is the same uh, lamb that appeared last Christmas, but um, a different role. Very, um, can act in many different situations. So in case you remember, just put that out of your mind. It's hard when you see the actors, right, in different roles. You think, I can't get, you always, this is uh, very cute. Instead, so, it was like a daughter to this man. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man, remember, he had all, he had lots of stuff, right? But the rich man uh, refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare, prepare a meal. So instead of showing hospitality to this traveler, he had so much he could have given, but he said, no. I'm not going to take one of my many sheep or cattle. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. They, they, they ate him for a meal, right? I know. Poor little. What do I do with it now? Let's put him here. He's dead. They ate him. So Nathan tells this story, okay, this parable. Uh, Nathan is a prophet. The Lord sent him to talk to David. Remember, we just read at the end of chapter 11 what David did displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends Nathan to David and tells him the story. How does David react? David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. Those two things that the Lord was not happy with, killing Uriah and taking his wife to be his own. 
You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Bathsheba is portrayed as this cute little innocent lamb. David replied. He understood. He got it. He said, okay, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. As we know, God is very faithful and just. He's compassionate. He's full of mercy. He loves to forgive. And he says to, to, through Nathan to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. David acknowledged that what he did was wrong. He even said, sinned. I sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But there's something else. And this next verse is probably uh, one of the most difficult verses for us in this story to really to read. But he says this. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son warns you will die. Their son will die because of what David did. Those two things that were just utterly detestable to God. This is not, is it not uncomfortable? It's kind of, an, we don't really like this verse, and I'm not going to go on at length trying to explain this. This is what the scripture says. There was um, one theologian said this could be, you could see this as a kind of mercy uh, for Bathsheba, because um, growing up she would have had to, you know, explain you know, the gossip and, you know, whose child is this really, and I mean, it does save her, I guess, from that. But anyways, this is what the scripture says what happened. The son dies, okay, and then um, Bathsheba is, uh, this wife of Uriah is not doing well. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. He went to her, made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. He was also listed right in the genealogy, David's son, Solomon. His mother was Bathsheba. But the Lord loved him. The Lord loved Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet again to name him Jedidiah. They named him Solomon. God named him Jedidiah. What does that mean? Beloved of the Lord. Because the Lord loved him. So that's, God loved this son so much. So I'm going to call him, you know, loved. This is the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Oh, there's a couple paragraphs more. I'm, I'm not going to read it, but as, as you see in your, in your scripture, it goes back to the battle again, doesn't it? Remember how it started in chapter 11, that war? Uh, David just wanted to finish them off. The kings go to war, but he didn't. So maybe, I don't know, that set something. He should have should never have been there, right? And Bathsheba would have thought he wasn't there. They should have assumed that, because that's what kings do. They go to war, but he didn't. He stayed home. Now, at the end of this story, at the end of chapter 12, he's going back to battle. He's going to finish them off. and just So he does go to battle and completes it. So it's kind of like a good little story, right? 11 and 12, chapter 11 and 12 starts with this war, and there's this thing with Uriah, and then it finishes. The battle is now complete. But in Matthew, chapter 1, verse 6, remember we're asking the question, what is she doing here? Why is she listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? And this is really, really kind of, when you think about it, it says, David was a son of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Like, why even include that? 
David, David was the father of Solomon. Bathsheba was the father of Solomon. They were married at that time when this second baby was born. They were, so like, why bring this up? Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Wouldn't it have just been say, David was the father of Solomon? You could all say, whose mother was Bathsheba? What's wrong with that? But for some reason, it says, he, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What do you think of when you hear these words? I mean, if you had read this, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Bathsheba. He's like, okay, great, I remember. Bathsheba and David had a son named Solomon. But she's referred to as Uriah's wife for a reason. When you hear that, the only thing you, you're going to think of that story. The scriptures are pointing us. That you look, remember Uriah, the Hittite. That's the intention of these words that is written. Otherwise, they would have just said, they wouldn't have included her, or they would have just said Bathsheba, right? So this is what we think of. We think of this awful story, David, and the awful things that he did in this introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and these are his ancestors, and this is part of his. So you think your story is weird, because all our stories are weird, but so is Jesus, so we've got that in common. He's got crazy ancestors, so do we. He also has crazy descendants, because we are some of those, I guess so. So in Matthew's genealogy, we see at critical times throughout Israel's history, as listed in this genealogy, it's, it's these strange women on the fringe who are doing all these sexually suggested, like appropriate or inappropriate, it's hard to say. Yeah, these are the ones who seem to have the faith, and these are the ones who are remembered in history and written down. Again, just like this person here. There's this contrast set up between Uriah, who was faithful, right? He didn't... He wanted to stay in battle. He wanted to stay. He did not do as David suggested. He said, no, I can't do that. He was faithful. David was not. Uriah's wife, she was faithful. She was just fulfilling her religious duties. David was one who sinned. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, there are many reasons. Right? This is Christmas. It's not just some random you know, sermon we could do in March or April. The coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnate, why did Jesus come? Why did he come? There's many, there's actually more than one reason. There are many reasons in scripture given to why Jesus came, and you can think of some of those probably in your head. In Matthew chapter 1, though, as we keep reading a few more verses down, it says this. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In this story, in Matthew chapter 1, at the beginning of this gospel, this is the reason that is given. Jesus will save his people from it. That's what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown, right? This is what it's about. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Other reasons, there, yes, there are other reasons. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So he came to serve, and he came, came to give his life as a ransom for many. There are so many good reasons that Jesus came. John 10.10, 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He wants to have a full life. That's another reason that Jesus came. Another reason. Luke 4, 8, Jesus, his own words, he says, He, the Father, has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Yes, this is another reason that Jesus came. These could all be different Christmas sermons right here, these verses. Another one. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This, this is another reason why Jesus, to destroy evil. Destroy the devil's work. But in Matthew chapter 1, in this context, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are from the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
and including Uriah's wife in the genealogy. Does that not remind you of something very sinful? Murder and rape? This, these are awful, awful things. These are big sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. This is why he came. Sins. I know that makes us feel uncomfortable. When was the last time you heard sin? You know, it's kind of an old-fashioned word, isn't it? We don't use it much anymore. It's kind of gone out of vogue. Maybe back in the day, if you grew up in church, people talked about sin a lot and hell and fire and all this stuff, but we don't talk about it so much anymore, do we? But it's a biblical word, sins. You know, we, we like to use other words. We, we describe, oh, there's a, you know, it's a disorder, or uh, it's just the way I am. You know, I can't help it. Um, but we, we hesitate to use this word. So even in the church, we might say, you know, we really need to target holiness as a growth area. I mean, what, sin is our problem, really. It's just like, it's, it's, biblically speaking, it's sin. He will save his people from their sins. It's easy to see sins of other people, right? You know, oh, he's so vain, or, you know, things about herself. We get that, right? It's, I could see, I'm really good. I don't know if you are. Probably not as good as I am. I'm really good at seeing sins in other people. I get that. Not so good with myself. I can be deceitful, which is why uh, I need God. And I need you, actually, to point out um, Sins. We, we don't like that word, but it's actually a biblical word. It's the best way to describe it. It also seems an old-fashioned word because today, I bet the last time you heard that word or you saw that word sin, I bet it was in a dessert menu. Chocolate sin pie or something, right? Or like peanut butter binge or something like that. Remember there was that restaurant, Dessert Sensations. Did it move or did it close down? I'm not sure, but it's not there anymore. I know, I'm so sad. But it's... It's like sin for us today is, like dessert is sinful, right? It's like how many calories? You eat. Sin is, is measured by your calorie intake. But lying, you know, it's not a sin. Or, you know, these are not sins. Dessert, that's sinful, right? Isn't that how we talk about sin these days? But really, this is a biblical word. And at Christmas time, it is good for us to pause and to remember this is the reason Jesus came, to save us from our sins. Now, if you hear that Jesus came you know, to save you from your sins, when you hear those words, if you feel condemned, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, then, then I'll say, you have a wrong picture of who Jesus is. Jesus isn't here to condemn. He never, you can't find that. There's a lot of reasons that Jesus came, but you're not going to find that one. Jesus, you know, God became flesh and incarnated and was born in a manger so he could condemn us. That's not there. So if you feel condemned when you hear that Jesus came to save you from your sins, that's the wrong picture of Jesus. Just get that out of your mind. John 3.16. You love John 3.16, right? What about John 3.17? You ever go to the next verse? It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. No, he did not send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So it's good for us to talk about sins because it's biblical. It's it's true, and we are sinners, whether we like that word or not. But when Jesus save, it's a word like deliver. It's like rescue. You rescue people who need help. You rescue people who are dying. Jesus came to save, and let me tell you, yes, he did. Like, we do bad things. See, I didn't use that word again. I should, sorry. We use sinful things. We sin. 
and it causes other people harm, right? And we know that. And sometimes like, oh, I need to go back and apologize, but then we don't, you know, it just passes and it's over. Or, or even sometimes we, maybe at the end of the year we get our tax receipts and we think, oh, I, I thought I gave more. I should have given more. I should have been more generous this year, but, you know, and then go, you forget it, we go on. But, um, and sometimes the things we do, they hurt other people. When we sin, we hurt other people. Jesus came to save us from that. Not only that, sometimes other people sin and it hurts us. Sometimes it's a really big way. Sometimes it's, it lasts, the, the, the effects last a long time. And Jesus also came to save you from that, from the effects, like what other people do. See, this is really, really good news. Jesus came to save us from all this, from this depression, from this anxiety, from these disorders, from everything. He doesn't just want to save you from what you do, but also what other people do. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. It isn't. And it's going to be perfect someday, but we're getting there. And Jesus has destroyed the powers of evil. And he is here to save us from our sins. The sins we do to other people and the sins that people do to us. This is really, really good news. We have two kinds of Christmases, right, in our culture. And I love the Santa Claus Christmas. I do. And I also love this Christmas. I just don't want you overlapping the two because we forget. This is what Christmas is all about. Some kids, um, some, some youth apparently don't understand what why do people have, like, Mary and Joseph? Like, what does that have to do with Christmas, you know, on their lawn? People don't get that. That's okay. It's okay to have two kinds of Christmases. Just recognize that. This is why Jesus came. Not so we can give presents to each other, which is fun, and I love doing it. It's part of our culture. Great. But Christmas is what Jesus is coming to save us from our sins. Isn't that wonderful? This is one of the reasons Jesus came. Psalm 51, have you ever heard of that? Psalm 51, this is one of the Psalms, and this was written by David, by this same David that we just talked about. It was written when the prophet Nathan came after David had done what he had done to Uriah and to Bathsheba. David said, I have sinned against the Lord, and in response, he wrote this Psalm, Psalm 51. Let me just read a few verses, and then let's close in prayer, and then let's sing about Jesus at the end. Is that Okay. Psalm 51 begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Those are just different words for sin. And cleanse me from my sin. Later on, he says, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. But he says this in verse 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. You want to give a gift to Jesus this Christmas? Why not give him this? A broken spirit, a contrite heart, some humility, recognizing that we love that he came to save us from our sins. I love that he came to save me from my sin, and I'm getting more and more full of that. Give that as a gift to Jesus this Christmas, a broken and contrite spirit and a humble attitude. Let me pray, and then the music team will come up, and we'll sing about Jesus. God, thank you for your love and for your compassion. We know you did not come to condemn us, but sometimes we feel condemned. Will you release us from that? Give us the courage to admit, to confess our sin to you. 
Free us from that. And from the sin that other people have done to us when we've been innocent, yet it has effects on our lives, Lord, free us from those things. Help us to, to identify where we believe these lies that have entered at that time. The effects of this is not your will for our, our lives. Lord, will you free us through the power of your Holy Spirit, from the res- power, that same power that was revealed at the resurrection. Use this power, Lord, to free us. 